So Grant asked me to um, talk about what God has been doing in my life, which was a pretty easy answer. Psalms 91. So it's been like, um, I think three months, let's see, dang, time flies, maybe four or five months. God gave me Psalms 91, and he, um, he just told me to focus on it, to read it, to live it, to become it. So I started to do that. Um, it's been an incredible adventure. When we were at VOA, somebody confirmed that. Um, somebody very important in the kingdom uh, uh, confirmed that. So it was really cool. Definitely, it's you know what's this season of my life is about Psalms ninety-one. Um, so the first thing, well, first of all, I want to thank you guys for seriously, Grant. Thank you for letting me preach again. I know it's kind of a risk, uh, but I love it. I think it's great um, practice, and I I'm the youngest person in the room, but I love you guys, and I'm honored to be able to talk with you about my life. So thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. So the first thing I want to do. Love and sacrifice, oh, let my... It's all good. It can be my background music. Okay, I'm going to tell you guys my game plan, okay? Just since it's a small group. I'd probably do it anyway. Here's my game plan. I'm going to read through Psalms 91 first, and I'm going to get you guys hungry for the promises in this incredible chapter of the Bible. It's, I mean, obviously right now it's my favorite, but seriously, some of the promises in here are life-changing mind-blowing. So we're going to just read through it. It's not very long. I'm just going to go over what, um, you know, two verses by two verses, just kind of what it means, what it says, what the promises are, and what are the conditions to the promise. Because remember whenever Grant um, taught us that a lot of, there's a lot of promises in the Bible, but they're not just like, I can use this at any time, no matter what. It's like, no, God says, if you do this, I will do this. And so for Psalms 91, there is, that this is all about if you abide in the presence of the Almighty, then you'll receive these. You'll have this kind of relationship. You'll get this kind of protection, things like that. So let's just read through it real quick. Uh, I guess I'll read it. Uh, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. That is the most confusing verse in this whole chapter, just so you know. So it's, it's like he who dwells, like I heard it said, he who builds his house where God's house is. So it's like us intentionally going to where the presence of God is. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. And like Bill Johnson teaches, whatever shadows you, you will shadow. So if, you know, does that make sense? Like what goes through you comes out of you. Verse 2, I'll say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Next slide, please. You can just go as quick as you want, Jonathan. Just uh, go with me. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. So whenever Satan puts traps in our way to try to ensnare us into sin or even into danger, God is going to deliver us from those snares, from those traps. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. That means my armor and the defense against what I use to defend the enemy is, is God's faithfulness. It's my armor. It's how I protect myself. I know there's the armor of God too. But in Psalms 91, he says, because the other one wasn't written yet, so this is the first armor of God actually. It's his faithfulness. It's everything about what he is, what he does, and how faithful he is. That's what defends me against the enemy. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the air that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that lays waste at noonday. You will not fear any kind of evil, whether in the morning, in the noon, in the night. 
thousand may fall at your side. People love to quote this one. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will look only with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. That's pretty, I mean, uh, that's pretty cool for me. <clears throat> because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, and this is David talking, no evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague come, to, come near your tent. So because you made the Lord your dwelling place, because you have made him your home, because you went to where he was and made your home in that place, no evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague come near your tent. That is a lofty promise that David gives us. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all of your ways, not the Lord's ways. I thought that was interesting. He will guard you in all of your ways, talking to us. He's not saying he will guard you in all of the Lord's ways, as long as you're, I mean, you know, it's like he's lenient. Like it's not, if I mess up, he's not going to guard me anymore. If he's my dwelling place, even if I mess up, he's still going to guard me because he's my dwelling place. Not because I'm walking exactly in the Lord's ways. That's how I translate it. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. And I always thought, like, why did he put young lion? That makes, like, a weaker lion. But actually, the meaning of that is, like, a stronger, like, a more ferocious lion, like, one with more energy, like, stronger. That's why, if you know anything about lions, and I happen to know things about lions, the it's a constant game of like masculinity like the young guys always they fight and if the older one wins he gets to keep his pride but if the younger one wins old one has to get out and the young one gets a pride so the young lion is the up and comer the one that's stronger and more physically <coughs> because he holds fast to me in love okay stop right there sorry so this is where god takes the pen from david it's no longer it's no longer david talking god said david give me the pen and he wrote this because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I'll protect him because he knows my name. So go back for one second. Because he holds fast to me in love, I'll deliver him. So this is direct correlation. If you hold fast to him in love, he will deliver you. If you know his name, he will protect you. Keep going. If you call to him, he will answer you. And then God says, I'll be with him in trouble. I'll rescue and honor him with long life. I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Thank you, Jonathan. So God goes through this list of things. For the first three, he says, if you do this, I'll do this. If you do this, I'll do this. If you do this, or because you do this, I'll do this. That is like just more of him saying like the conditional promises of the Bible. Like not every word, you know, I can't just quote, you know, a thousand may fall at my side, 10,000 at my right hand, but it will not come near me. If I haven't been making the Lord my dwelling place, you're going to fall. You know what I mean? You're going to be one of the 10,000. But it's when you make the Lord your dwelling place, when these c promises come into contact and they come into real life. So I'm going to go over kind of just my walk with God these past few months and what God has been teaching me about Psalms 91. Um, and I've been reading a lot of about the people in the Bible that um, really presume the Psalms 91 life, and we'll get to that in a minute, but I want to be one of those people. I want to have these promises because that's just really awesome, and so often, like, you look at those, and it's like, that's not even realistic because that doesn't happen. Like, people die. People get shot and assassinated. I mean, men of God get martyred, you know, and it's like, that kind of seems like the Lord's will, and there's even a verse in the Bible that says um, it's, it's like, joyful to the Lord, when, or it's, I forgot what it was exactly. It's like, it's sweet to the Lord when his saints die for his sake, basically. Like, you know, it's like a sacrifice, and he, he loves that. But in this verse, it says that um, a thousand will fall your side, ten thousand your hand, but it will not come near you. 
He's talking about you'll always have angelic protection that you won't even cast your foot against a stone. So I've been kind of wrestling with like, where is the line of of the protection and the like the martyr like suffering for the Lord? Like I know both are holy, awesome things, and I think they're held in tension. But it's just kind of been like finding the line of where that is. Um, something else he's really taught me about being in his presence, not necessarily the the promises of all of that stuff, because even the promises are once you get into the presence, even the promises are um, small, seem kind of small, but just being in his presence, it takes your eyes away from the promises, away from whatever ambition you have in your heart. I'm a very ambitious guy. Uh, futuristic is my number one on the strengths test, so I'm always thinking and dreaming about what what I could become, what the church could become, what my marriage could become. I'm always dreaming, just always dreaming, and most of them are pretty outrageous. So I always am, am trying to figure out ways to make these promises come true. But when you get into the presence, and this is the what the, the probably the number one thing the Lord has taught me, is whenever you really dwell in the secret place of the Most High, those things r- kind of become secondary. But they take over my heart. If I'm like, if I'm not in the presence, they will absolutely take me over and like run me down. And there's nothing I can do about it. Just because I get so excited, so ambitious, want this so bad, want the ministry so bad, you know. But we, we've all heard stories about people that have idolized their ministry and God had to cut them down for it, you know. That's a real thing. Um, happened with uh, most of my heroes. God had to cut them down because they, they started idolizing their ministry. Ryan Lestrange, a lot of us know him, he had to, like, take a season off because people around in his church started idolizing his ministry. But whenever you get into the presence, I think that's really the key to not idolize, like, church ministry. Like, I want this church to grow so bad, and we have six people here. Come on, God. And and I, obviously that's not it's a holy desire for us to want to grow the church and reach out to people. But not only when we get into the presence we get the solution, but when we get into the presence it almost it almost like is it's it still matters but it's like totally secondary to just uh, just beholding Jesus. And one of the other main things I've learned is like really looking at God. I, I've never seen God, never even had like a really intense vision of God. But he taught me during worship. He kind of he was talking to me about David and the worshipper's heart and stuff. And he, he and there's all these teachings like Bill Johnson and them about like what you look at you become, right? I think that's something like that. What you look at is what you become, or what you focus on. That's that's where you walk. Like, so if I'm looking at Grant, but I'm trying to walk a straight line, I'm going to end up veering because I'm looking that way. You know what I'm saying? So really looking at God, and I can't. I've never again. I've never seen God. Um, I want to, but I never have. But just in my heart, just closing my eyes and just beholding who he is and not, f- not thinking about anything, this is how it's worked best for me. I think it's probably different for everybody. But just even just pretending to look, see God, you know, even just in my imagination, using my imagination, uh, whether it's a guy in a long white beard and robes or what, whatever you want, but just like, even if it's just like a throne and just golden light coming off of it, just like looking at God. And honestly, every time I do that, it really purifies my heart and it really gets me like joyful and excited. And I can't describe it. I don't know why it does that. But it's, it, it's true that what you look at, you become. And after that, I just become thankful. I just become, I, I don't, I'm not thinking about bills and like what I need to pay. I'm not thinking about, um, you know, what I'm going to get out of my job. I'm just thinking about like, wow, like thank you so much, God, for just allowing me to be in this moment. It's so much better than, w- I'd work at Hemispheres the rest of my life if I can just see you like this every day. And that truly is how... I think, like we talked about thankfulness, I, th- I, I, don't th- I, I haven't found any other way to be thankful than to just really behold him and use my imagination to just spend time looking at him and just, you know, hearing him and stuff.
That's probably one of the most powerful um, practical things that you will get out of this today, just so you know. <laughs> and another thing that I've really been uh, taught through Psalms 91 is that God knows best, and Rachel taught me this, but I didn't really believe her, I didn't put it into practice, <laughs> but it's true. Uh because I love to pray. I love to, like, travailing petition, like, pray every day. Pray for the same thing. Pray a million times. Like, the story about the widow, or the, sorry, the story about the uh, the person knocking on the friend's door, you know, like, it, but it's it's because you annoyed the crap out of me that you get what you wanted. I, I, I'm the neighbor, uh, or I'm the annoying neighbor, and I, and the one, w- there's another one about um, the widow, or I think it's a widow, with unrighteous judge, and it's like, even an unrighteous judge would give that person just because She's, you know, pestering me. And I love that kind of stuff. That's, I mean, I'm all about it. That's who I am. That's what I, it's exciting. I love it. But the Lord has really taught me now uh, that he knows best. He knows what I want. Uh, he knows what I need, but he also knows what I want. And trusting him, and I'm not, I, don't, I haven't done away with that, of course. I still do that. But really just spending more time saying, and this is what I do every day. Uh, I just like, I usually speak, just pray in tongues or just be silent. But I just say, God, I, I just receive all of your goodness today because dwelling in the secret place of the Most High, it's like there's nothing I could want other than you. There's nothing I have. Like, I'm not going to be in the presence and also be what, like, God, I really need this money for bills. I'm not, I mean, if you're really in the presence, like, you're not, it's completely focused. I mean, you can't turn your eyes off of him. Um, of course, you can get out of his presence, but I don't recommend that. <coughs> so, I mean, and people do that all the time. People worry and things. It's like, whoa, 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 like, get in the presence, you know? And, he, and it's not like going into a room and manifesting God's presence. That's a huge part of it, but really just being where, you know, positionally where you are is in his presence. Just remembering that. <coughs> so, anyway, God had me reading about these different men. I'm going to share with you um, a few men in the Bible that portrayed Psalms 91 and lived it out, and their lives were all very different because of it. First one is Moses um, in the tent of meeting. You guys remember whenever Israelite was in Israel, Israelite, (laughs) whenever the Israelites were in the wilderness and Moses had the tent that he set up that he would go and meet with God and literally the physical manifest presence of God would come like a cloud at the entrance of the tent and and people would get out of their tents and they'd worship God while it was there. And Moses made it intentional, made a number of intentional decisions to pursue the physical presence of God, follow the physical presence of God, and even, like, as far as the Ark of the Covenant goes, like, begin to build that. He was, like, one of the fierce people that really, like, added, you know, the Ten Commandments and the, his Aaron's staff, things like that. Uh, I think it was Aaron's staff, wasn't it? The abutted staff, yeah, that. Anyway, and the Ark of the Covenant is so, like, um, it's kind of like the it's kind of like a token of God's presence on earth. You know, it's like that's where his presence rests because they didn't have the new covenant. So each person wasn't necessarily a, a Ark of the Covenant in themselves, like Sharon taught us a while back. But, but the, the Ark of the Covenant was the one place where God dwelled. He was the first person to really start kind of leading that up God, as God led him. But he also had the tent of meeting where he would go and he would make decisions and he would talk with God as, as a friend. Like he had, they had such a close relationship, such a close friendship Moses and God that Israelite probably is alive today because of that. I mean, I reading through is like Israel and like where they were and where they like how they were acting. If Moses and God didn't have that friendship, I don't know if they would have made it. Let's just say that. 
just because I wouldn't have let them make it. <laughs> yeah, that's true. One other thing I wanted to uh, mention about Moses is Joshua, who happened to be the guy that took over Israel after Moses died, was the was the kid. It says that he didn't leave the tent even after Moses left. Joshua stayed in the tent to be where the presence was. And just yeah, just as a young boy, he was a young servant basically to Moses. He was his little servant boy. I mean, I'm sure he treated him well, but he was no one of importance, but he stayed where the presence was. And he became the heir to the throne of Israel, even though there wasn't a throne. The next person, uh, Samuel. Do you guys remember Samuel? He was being trained by Eli. He, his mom dedicated him to the Lord, and so he lived in the temple. And he's being trained by Eli, and Eli was growing old and dim in his discernment and his mind. But he got, but, and, and the Bible even says Samuel didn't know him. God didn't know Samuel. Samuel didn't know God. But he got one thing right, and he, he went to sleep where the Ark of the Covenant was, or where the presence of the Lord was, the Ark of the Covenant. He, he laid down in the space of the Ark of the Covenant, in the physical space. He didn't know God. He wasn't a Christian even, maybe. I mean, he, did, he was being trained under Eli, who was the prophet at the town, and he was supposed to be the up-and-comer. And he got one thing right. He laid down where the Ark of the Covenant was, and God called to him three times. And I think that if you look, I mean, if you read through that, it's like he, that happens because he laid down in the, in the space of the Ark of the Covenant where the presence of the Lord was, he made his home. And even unintentionally, he was dwelling in the presence of God. Right? Doesn't say you have to do it on purpose. I mean, he unintentionally he was dwelling where the presence of the Lord was. He made his home, his bed, where the Ark of the Covenant was. So you know the story. Samuel, he gets up three times and he talks to Eli. He's like, did you call me? He's like, no. And then the third time, Eli's like, oh, it's probably the Lord. So, you know, and he gets called to be the prophet to the nation that ends up anointing King David, who becomes the heir to Jesus. You know, it's a, he, he played a hu- pretty huge role in the Old Testament. The last one, uh, well, not the last one, but the next one is King David, my personal favorite. His whole life was basically a pursuit of God's presence. Even when he was a young boy, just being a shepherd, he would just play and he would just spend time with the Lord in his presence and um, not necessarily pray, but just worship and just kind of become friends with God, even as a young boy. And and even throughout whenever he gets anointed and his you know and and his kingship, he there's a couple things about him is he always remembered what the Lord did. I think that's probably the second thing he got right is he kept remembering what the Lord did and he was faithful to remember what God did. But I think the first thing that David got right, the reason that God trusted him to be king and to um, have power and authority like never before at that time, uh, was that he was pursuing the presence of God always, constantly. He went after the Ark of the Covenant, and whenever he got the Ark of the Covenant back into his town, I mean, he went crazy. He went wild, you know, like dancing and being undignified. And these these three people, especially Moses and David, but even Samuel, even just that one encounter that Samuel had led to him being the prophet over the nation, I mean, which is one of the highest roles in the nation because church, church and government were kind of flopped back then. And so I started looking. God told me, like, look at these three different people's life. What, what is the, what is the same? Like, what is similar between all of them? Obviously, the presence, 
They pursued the presence of God. They spent time in the presence of God. Moses in the tent of meeting. David worshiped noon, evening, and night. Spent time seeking after the Ark of the Covenant. Um, and Samuel laid down where the Ark of the Covenant was, even on accident. But if you look and read about them and their character, and you, and you read through the promises in Psalms 91, David should have died a long time ago, right? He should have gotten killed. He had an entire army after him. He had an entire nation after him. The king of the nation who had access to hundreds of soldiers, mighty men, assassins probably. I mean, why didn't he die? Like, why didn't, how did, how did he not die? I mean, he dwelt in the place of the Almighty. He dwelt in the presence of God. Moses, I mean, why did they survive? Why did Israelite, I mean, Israel should have died in the wilderness way before they survived, and even God wanted them dead for a while. Why, how did they survive? It's because one man decided to say, I want to dwell in the presence of God. And Psalms 91 says, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No, no plague come near your tent. And I know there's sometimes it's like, well, I feel like that did happen, but, you know, that's a mystery. I'm just saying, like, these guys were protected. They had these promises, but they, and God, God delivered his side of these promises. And if you notice something about David, he loves to talk about the faithfulness of God. All the time, he's just yelling about the faithfulness of God. I think he's even trying to convince himself sometimes. A lot of times, like, it sounds like he's, like, just, praise the Lord, oh, my soul, praise the Lord. But I think sometimes he's like, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul, you know, trying to, like, convince himself because I think he knew the power of this thing. I think he knew the power of dwelling in the place of the Most High and being thankful. And, and, and that is why he had an entire army. He should have died. He got this close to the king. I mean, just incredible feats that, that he should have died. Israel, they should have ran out of water and food a long time, and they should have worn out of their clothes. But because of one man dwelling in the place of the Most High, because the presence of God was on one man, an entire nation of Israel survived. And because of one man, King David, entire nation was given to him and trusted to him and uh, even persevered through battles and wars that they shouldn't have won. So, that's, that's pretty exciting. I'd like to lead a nation someday. <laughs> so, all three of these men were extremely successful. They seemed to be invincible. And they were promoted to very high places simply because they were where the presence was on accident and on purpose. And this really makes me think, if, especially in David's life, but really in all three, if you look at their dialogue with the Lord and just kind of their dialogue, especially David in their life, it's like their entire, it's like David's entire life, all his ups and downs, his crazy mood swings and all the wildness that he is, it's really just him playing catch, like trying to catch God and then being caught and then trying to trust the Lord and then getting disappointed and then trying to trust him again. It's just like, it's him learn. It's like getting to know God. And it's really such a beautiful picture. Like, I wish I could read through all the Psalms in one day, but really it's just the, it's just Psalms 91, like learning to dwell in the secret place and then getting disappointed and then lear learning to dwell again. And it's, it's honestly, it's pretty fantastic if you read it, but all of them ha built a relationship of trust with the Lord and I think that in his presence is the very best place to do that. I know in his presence is the very best place to build relationship with the Lord, to have ups and downs, to be disappointed, to get back up and trust him again. And I think that's how God trusts these people to lead nations, to to do that. And especially with David, you see, like, he he was committed to the presence of God. He wasn't didn't have it all together. He was, I've heard him called a, 
like doctors today think David had like all kinds of mental dis- like like, eg- like egomaniac uh, a bunch of other crazy things like he wasn't necessarily the most qualified guy he was the runt of his family but he was committed to the presence of God and I I think that that building where where you build relationship with the Lord in the presence of God I think that is what got him a kingdom I think that's what got him to be king is being committed to the presence and so. Let me share one more with you. One more man in the Bible who was committed to the presence. Jesus. You're smart, right? Jesus, the perfect example. All the other guys are, are less than perfect examples. But Jesus is the perfect example of someone that dwelt in the presence of God. He only did what he saw his father do. He only said what he saw his father say, heard his father say. And I imagine, this is the Bible doesn't say this, but I imagine him waking up every morning. It says that he retreated often to the mountain and to the wilderness to pray and just be with the Lord, be with his Father. I imagine every morning he woke up and he just kind of listened and looked. He just kind of like just sat quietly, maybe prayed for a little bit, just kind of sat and looked at the Lord and just responded. And his whole day was a response to what he saw and heard that morning. And maybe that's not true. I'm sure he was looking and listening throughout the day as well because, you know, Father changes his mind sometimes. But I really feel like like his... He, as a life is more of a response to the Father than, than like a pursuit of ministry. Because even whenever he wasn't doing ministry for the vast majority of his life, I, I think that that's what the Father was doing. I think that that's, he did that same thing. But at that point, it was be faithful to be a carpenter, be faithful to be a good son, to teach in the synagogues and things like that. So he is the perfect example of Psalm 91. He should have died a lot longer than he before he did. I mean, it was God's will for him to go on the cross. We know that. But even whenever the people had him backed up against the hill, you know, and he should have fallen off or gotten killed, but he just walked, he walked right through like as if he was invisible. You know, he should have died before. And he, people chasing around trying to kill him for a long time before they got him. Because of Psalms 91, in my opinion. <sighs> Jesus was totally fearless. He never, I mean, he was, he felt the emotion, I'm sure, but he never made a, a decision out of fear. He never let fear make a decision for him. And I think really in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was like, it was the one time when he was like really nervous and um, I don't know if afraid is the right word or not, but nervous, afraid-ish. But even in the most horrible, I mean, I think going, like knowing the day before you're going to go to the cross was probably worse than going to the cross. Like just the anxiety inside of you, I think that's probably worse. I think for me it would be. But even just, even in that intense moment, entrusting tr- himself to the Lord and, and, and responding still to what the Lord, what, what he saw and did. Even in that most intense when he, eh, probably every other person would have made a decision out of fear. Um, he didn't fear the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the air that flies at noonday. You know, he had no fear in him. And if you read all these other examples, you can line them up with all the people in the Bible, especially Jesus. Um, and and it's kind of astounding, actually, how how accurate it is. You know, his faithfulness is a shield and buckler. Like, yeah, Jesus, if God didn't come through for him, he would have gotten hurt and gotten killed before it was time. One other thing about Jesus that really intrigued me is whenever Satan was uh, going to tempt him in his 30-day fast, you know, after he got baptized, he... Uh <coughs> Just kidding. 
Whenever Satan, I almost said whenever Satan baptized Jesus. I don't think that happened. <laughs> whenever Jesus got baptized and Satan was tempting him in the wilderness, uh, he goes through a couple of things. And I thought this was really interesting too. The first thing Satan tempts is Jesus' trust in the Father's provision. Right? Because he says, if you turn these bread into stone, you know, you need food. It's like, so he's trying to undermine the Father's provision. The second thing is if you cast yourself down, I'm sure he'll protect you. And he goes after the Father's protection. When he does that, he quotes Psalm 91. He says, Satan does. And he says, does it not say in the word that even his angels were bear you up on their hands lest you strike your foot against a stone? And so that makes me think that Satan knows the power of Psalms 91. And it makes me think that Jesus even more knew the power of Psalms 91. And even in that moment, attempted to, or even in that moment, he, he stayed fast to the presence of the Lord and only heard, and only, he only responded to what he saw his father do when he was in the presence. Even whenever he's tempted with the word of God that says, listen, you have angelic protection. God's not going to let you, f-, and he fires back, you know. And the third thing that Satan tempted was uh, his position in the Lord. You know, if you bow down to me, I'll give you, I'll make you ruler of all these cities because right now I'm the Lord on the earth. And so he goes after his provision, the, f- the father's provision, the father's protection, the father's position. And I got to thinking about, I was like, that's probably what Satan still does today. He probably goes after, he tries to undermine the father's provision, father's protection, and the father's position, and like the father positioning you where you're supposed to be positioned. And I just got to think about it, and it, it's not totally connected to Psalms 91, but I was just like, dang, like, if we protect our, if we like protect our hearts and say, God, I trust you to provide me, I trust you to protect me, I trust you to give me position, like in you, like Psalms 91 says, like abiding in your presence, I mean, that kind of covers it all a little bit, if you think about it, but anyway. So Satan knew the power of Psalms 91. So should we. Jesus knew the power of Psalms 91. He lived it out. He received the promises of Psalms 91. So should we. Right now I'm reading a book that Grant um, told me to read called uh, The Heavenly Man. It's basically the Apostle Paul in China. But it's like like 20 years ago or 30. It's like recent. Like in the 80s and 90s. And this guy is like wild. He's just this, he, he just got hungry for the Lord and they have small home churches there but they get persecuted, like intensely persecuted. And he started fasting and praying for Bible and he was hungry. He fasted for um, the first time. I don't know how long it was but it just like, he just fasted and prayed. He was so hungry for a Bible and then finally some guy came in the middle of the night and handed him a Bible. I mean, just crazy things. And all throughout his life, are the promises of Psalms 91. And, and he does get persecuted, does get beat, tortured, thrown in prison. I mean, really bad things happen to him. Um, he almost dies for the gospel several times, stoned. But also in his life are things where he's, he walked out of prison twice, like in impossible ways. One time he jumped over like a 10-foot wall, supernaturally. I mean, I don't, that doesn't make any sense to me. But one time he was in a maximum security prison in China, and that's still there. And it's like 20 years ago. It's not like fairy tale Bible. You know, it's just like like 20 years ago. This guy's still alive. I know. I mean, um, uh, Wheeler, Keith Wheeler has met this guy. I can talk to him and stuff. But this guy literally, the Lord told him he, his leg was broken because they beat him and they broke his leg. And he escaped from prison by w- walking out of the gates when the Lord told him to. And the gates would open and gar- guards were there guarding the gate with guns. But they didn't see him. And his leg, 
and, and he didn't know until afterwards, but he looked down and he was walking and his leg was healed because of his radical obedience to the Lord. When he should have gotten shot, he was like, God, t- he said, God, receive me into your spirit because I'm about to get shot. But he just walked out of the prison. Maximum security prison. Like in crazy things happening. Because this guy spent time in the Lord's presence. He dwelt in the presence of the Lord. He was committed to the presence of God. And he, and he even in the scariest situation, he didn't falter from that. Oh, that makes me so excited. I don't want to go to prison. <laughs> <laughs> my point though is that these things are real and even in the doesn't matter like what circumstances you're up against it's like these promises God's ability to withhold his to to not withhold but to give his to, you know handle his side of the bargain is far above any earthly circumstance you could ever come to and that is in t- you know just immensely encouraging so I really just want um, I know that you guys are awesome people every single one of you here is Probably didn't need to hear this message, but I just want to encourage you. Uh, it's what the Lord has been doing with me, and I know that we're all dealing with different things in different seasons, and I know not everybody's going to stop what they're doing and <laughs> run after Psalms 91. Then I don't expect that or want that, but even just to be encouraged by the promises of the Lord and to really just start to dwell in the presence, because no matter what you're facing, I mean, that is the answer. I wrote a uh, conclusion that's pretty... Um, Nifty, I think. So, let me read my conclusion about Psalms 91. (coughs) My conclusion about Psalm 91 and being in the presence is, no matter where you are, no matter what you believe, no matter what you struggle with, being in the presence of God takes our attention from the task before us, whether a great mountain of struggle or dreams of great accomplishment, and draws us to adoration of the one who is qualified and the qualifier, the victor and the one who brings victory, the Savior, and the salvation. It is in his presence where true dreams are achieved, true promotions received, and the greatest battle falls to its knees, not by ravenous hunger or travailing petition, but the closeness of our dear Father. Amen. Amen. So, that is my life story about Psalms 91. I hope you guys are hungry to at some point, go after them and even just start reading them and saying, God, how can I be in your presence? I think it's different for every person, but I love you guys. Thank you so much for encouraging me and listening to me and give me the microphone. Amen. Excellent. Awesome. Should we pray for him? Lord, we don't want him to go to prison, <laughs> but we do want the, the hunger, the desires of his heart to be fulfilled. God, we just thank you for this message. What a great, encouraging message. We say yes and amen. God, help us to be people who, like Samuel, just live in your presence. Who are just there day in, day out, every step that we take, every place we go, we'd be in your presence. And as a result, we would see all of those blessings from Psalm 71.